Join me in Matthew chapter 2. We started last week with the idea of Christmas reflections, and I wanted just to spend a few weeks looking at some of the Christmas passages. The one we were in last week was in Matthew chapter 1. We looked at it in the morning and the evening, talking about the genealogies of Jesus Christ. Today I want to jump into the next section of Matthew, and that is the story of the wise men, one that's very, very familiar with that to most of you. One of our men sent me a note this week about the wise men with a different version to it. It was wise woman. It said this, three wise women would have asked for directions, would have arrived on time, helped to deliver the baby, brought practical gifts, cleaned the stable, made a casserole, and there would be peace on earth. Now, some have different perspectives on the wise man, wise woman, whatever. But let me just answer a few questions and then get into our text. How many of them were there? Well, the song says, we three kings, so there had to be three. Well, we don't know that for sure. Now, traditionally, back in the Middle Ages, they went from anywhere from 2 to 12, and so they decided that uh, they would focus on three because of the three gifts. In fact, they named the individuals who aren't named in Scripture, and in one of the churches in the far eastern area, there is also a church that has all three skulls of the three magi that you can go and see to give absolute proof that there was three of them. Yeah, right. The Bible says very simply that there was magi in the plural sense. Two, twenty, we don't know. There's just no idea. When they ask the question about where did they come from, it says from the east. And so the question is, who are they? Okay, in that regard. Well, the magi is a term that just means wise person or magician or somebody who is very clever. The idea of somebody who knew the secret arts. In the Persian region, modern day Iraq area, is the idea that these magi, and that's where the term was used most frequently, were the, in, were the individuals who were very much involved in the government, in the training and the teaching there in that eastern part of the uh, Mediterranean world. And so they were the ones who were trained in sciences and in maths and the, uh, the different skills, medicine, pol- political ideas. They were called as, a, as an ancient group, they were given the title that they were the kingmakers. And basically back in the ancient uh, area of that world, that they, these individuals had to be coming through the school of the Magi before they could even serve as the king or they would appoint somebody. And so the Bible gives us an indication of four different characters in the scripture who were in that ancient world and they would have been the Magi. Do you know who they are? They're mentioned in the Old Testament. Daniel. Me, and then you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They fit this idea of the Magi trained in all kinds of arts and sciences and who basically made the governments run. And so they, those characters, Daniel and the others, they had carried with them the scriptures. They shared that. Daniel, obviously, from the book of Daniel, shared his faith. And so they would have shared the scriptures with others in these schoolings and these institutions. And the truth, therefore, successive generations would have also studied the Old Testament and would have been aware of the prophecies of the Messiah so that when the star showed, they would have known something was going on. And so we have that idea that these are some of those individuals coming from that ancient Persian region. The uh, star that they followed, you are going to get all kinds of ideas. You're going to hear that it was a conjunction of ancient, in the ancient world, planets coming together so that their paths crossed and there was this brilliant light and they'll give all kinds of other explanations 
denominations that appeared. Personally, I don't think that's what it is. The words that are used for star mean brilliance. They mean radiance, something that is bright and glowing. Obviously, a star would be that in the evenings. And so the word came to be used in Scripture even to reflect the idea of God's appearance at times where all of a sudden God's glory shone on Mount Sinai, where there was the Shekinah brightness or brilliance that was apparent. Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, he was a glow. In fact, even Messiah himself in Old Testament prophecies was called a star, a brilliant one, one who is a radiant one. And so when we look in Matthew chapter 2 and we read the story through, it says that they saw the star in the east, some type of, I think, supernatural uh, reflection, radiance, glowing light that was appearing. And then it disappeared for a period of time. When they got to Jerusalem, they asked, where is he that is born king of the Jews? And you read in the text that when they are leaving Jerusalem, the star all of a sudden turns on again, and it leads them this time southward, and it stands over the house, pointing out the exact place Jesus is at. I don't think a star way up in the sky, thousands of miles, would be able to do that. I think a brilliant supernatural light that the Lord gave would be one that would have caught their attention and as well pointed out to the exact spot where they were able to come into the very home where Jesus was there in Bethlehem. Other questions that come up are, you know, when did the wise men show up? They did not come when Jesus was in the stable, the manger, or the cave, whatever it happened to be. That's just not true. If you look in the text and you read the text that's here, it talks about them in verse 11 coming into a house in Jerusalem. Uh, I'm sorry, in Bethlehem. And it talks about Jesus when they saw the young child. This is a totally different word than, the, than infant that is used when the sh- uh, shepherds come and see Jesus there in that manger trough. This is the idea of a young child, a toddler, a pideon actually. And so when you get the idea and read the story, Herod is asking the wise men, when did you see the child? And based on that, he says, okay, when the slaughter of the infants, infants were taking out all those two years of age and younger. So the conclusion is, by typical Bible scholars who study it, is the Christ child was anywhere from a year to two years of age when the wise men showed up. And so I have other questions that come. But let me read the text, and then I'll show you my questions. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east. We are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes and the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. They said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, Before, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel." Then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when you have found him, bring me word again, that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. 
And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. And when they had departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt. And be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophets, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceedingly wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem in all the coasts thereof from two years old and under, according to the time when he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, In Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping, a great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted because they are not. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appears in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel. For they are dead which sought the child's young life, or the young child's life. And he arose, and took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea, in the room of his father Herod, he was afraid to go thither. Notwithstanding being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in the city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, I read this, and I have some questions. Questions that, quite frankly, I'm not going to be able to answer. But why did the star turn off as they were approaching Jerusalem, whenever that was? Why did the star turn off for a period of time and then turn back on when they left Jerusalem? If the star had stayed on, it could have taken them right to Bethlehem, and they would have bypassed Jerusalem altogether, and they wouldn't have had to deal with Herod. Why did God do that? Why was it that, that all of a sudden this happens, that Herod is threatening the children? Why doesn't God take Herod out? Why doesn't he just annihilate that evil man at that moment? I have the question is, why does God send Joseph to Egypt when they had been commanded in the Old Testament to go down into Egypt? And they weren't supposed to be there as a nation, as a people. Why is it as well that God just didn't hide them? Supernaturally, just blind the eyes, like he does at times when he blinds the eyes of officials who are going through suitcases where there's Bibles being smuggled in. Why didn't God just do those things supernaturally? As I reflect upon the text and unable to answer the stories, uh, the questions I have, there are some things that stood out to me. Actually, two thoughts. Two lessons that I think are very appropriate as I reflected upon this passage that I want to share with you. Number one was this. Number one that's clear to me is we should not be surprised by the growing opposition to Christianity today based on this text. The reason I say that is there was opposition to Christ when he first came. And it was serious opposition. Some of it was very subtle. Some of it was extremely severe. And if Christ, when he came, even as a babe was opposed, what do we expect we're going to have? How can we expect our culture to be any different? Here, let me give you a background on what I'm talking about. When the wise to Jerusalem, they're coming and they're looking for the predicted Messiah. 
They have studied Old Testament. They understand that a star is going to appear in the land of Judah, as the book of Numbers prophesies. And so they come to the land fully expecting that there is a new birth of a king of the Jews. They ask everybody. It says all Jerusalem is upset because they're asking this question. Herod hears about it. And Herod wants to talk to them about it. And so they're inquiring. They're not quiet about it. People know about it. The talk is going through the town. And so once Herod finds out about it, Herod wants to know from the wise, uh, from the scribes, the religious scholars, where is the Christ child predicted to be born? They tell him exactly what Micah had predicted, that the Christ child would be born in, in Bethlehem. Then Herod calls the wise men. Whether he talked to them before, we don't know. The text just says after he knew that information, then he converses with the wise men. And when he's conversing with them, he is really, really more interested, when did the star appear? But they find out that, okay, from Herod, it's the child's in Bethlehem. So what happens is these gentlemen, they are going to head for Bethlehem. But my point is, everybody in Jerusalem knows something's afoot. Everybody has an idea something strange is going on. They know that these travelers have come. It's caught the attention. It's got all of Jerusalem in an uproar. They're all troubled. So all these people know. The priests know. Herod knows. And yet, for all the knowledge that takes place, my question is this. How many of the people went down to Bethlehem to see the Christ child? The only ones that we know of who go are the wise men. And who else? No. Not the shepherds. They showed up at the manger. That's two years earlier. Who's the only other ones that go down towards Bethlehem? It's the soldiers. It's the only ones that we know of. Nobody else in this religious community who is looking for the Messiah, nobody else bothers. The only ones who are going are, like I said, the wise men to worship, soldiers sent by Herod to kill him. So this is a form of opposition to Christ. The opposition comes in this form of total apathy, total ignoring of Christ. Why? Is it, are they just too busy? Are they just so caught up with their own festivities, their own activities, their own businesses? Are they just preoccupied with the religious system that they are satisfied with. They don't need anything more. They're just busy playing temple or church. They're just all active doing that, and they don't want to learn any more about the Christ child. Is that possible that people would do that? That people would get an inkling that something special has happened, but they don't want to take the time to examine further. And here is a nation that historically is a religious nation that isn't concerned about the main character of their religion. May, may I ask you a question? Do you see the same thing happening in our country? Where there's a growing apathy towards Christ? Where people are all of a sudden so preoccupied, they know tidbits of Jesus, but they really don't want to learn any more about him. That individuals will celebrate Christmas, but they don't want to have an in-depth time with Jesus Christ. Well, have you seen it? That people will talk about his story. They'll mention it, but they, they don't want him to be a part of their story. Have you seen a trend that 
people don't even want to bring up the religious aspect of Christmas. Let's not bring Christ into it. Let's just celebrate the real meaning of Christmas. Christ is the meaning of the season. Have you seen in our country that historically was a Christian nation, but now is coming to a point where they are ignoring the Christ, the foundation of our faith? Is that a fair statement to say? That we are becoming an agnostic nation? Or even an atheistic nation? So I see in this passage that there is, for us today, there is a parallel here that says we ought not to be surprised by this. The nation that Jesus came to, they, when he came his first coming, they became very passive about him. And I suggest to you that as we get closer to the second coming of Jesus, we are going to see more passivity, more apathy towards Christ. And it ought not to surprise us. But it wasn't just a passivity. It wasn't just an apathy. All of a sudden, Christ, as a babe, is experiencing something much more. He is going to experience a severe rejection, a severe opposition. It comes in the form of not apathy, but anger. Anger that is all wrapped up in the man called King Herod. If you don't know anything about him, please, not, I don't want to bore you. I want you to understand this text. To understand this text, you've got to know a little bit about Herod. Who he was and what he was doing, that explains why the city was troubled when they were asking, where is he that was born the king of the Jews? Let me give you background. Herod is the king at the time that Jesus comes. Herod has been appointed king already several decades before. He is not a Jew by nationality. He became Jewish by marriage, or so he claimed. His background is Edomite. He is from the line of Esau. And so he is not related to the Jews at all. But when he got his, his order to be king of that region, what the Senate did is they said that we will give you the title King of the Jews. Keep that in mind. That's his title, King of the Jews. And so since 40 AD, uh, uh, 40 BC, he's been ruling. And so he's been reigning, ruling. He's been doing some good things as the king. What he did is he remodeled some of the things there in Jerusalem. He married into one of the most outstanding families. His, his tenth, uh, one of his ten wives was this Jewish called Mary Amney. Keep her in mind. I'll come back in a few moments. And so what happened is, as he was the ruler, he was helping this area of Jerusalem and Judea to prosper. He did things like he remodeled the temple that was still in remodeling form when Jesus Christ comes and they talk about Jesus, if the temple were to be torn down, he'd rebuild it in three days. And they refer, they say that it's been under construction for decades. That's Herod's reconstruction of it. Got aqueducts going, got seaports going, brought in some, some activities with a theater, with, with racetracks. He's done a lot to help the economy of the time. But that doesn't mean that he was a good king all the way through. By the time Jesus comes, he's about 70 years of age. He is ill physically. He is worse mentally. Some say it's because of some venereal disease. We don't know. But he is sick. He is absolutely to the point where he is paranoid and he is becoming a danger to everybody around him. Let me explain. 
Okay? In this growing paranoia of years, he starts taking out anybody who he feels might take his throne, might take his crown. He was the king of the Jews. And if anybody suggested somebody else wanted to be the king of the Jews, Herod would kill him. When he married Mary Amni, the Jewish woman, she had a younger brother. The younger brother, some suggest that when Herod would pass away, maybe that younger brother, who was a real Jew, could take the place of Herod on the throne. When Herod heard that, he had the brother killed. Plus, then he killed off many more of Mary Amni's family, and then he paid for this huge funeral. But he wanted to present himself as being favorable, but he was killing off some of the Jewish um, opposition some of those who might be able to be put up as his successor. But that's not all, okay? What happened is he also killed off three of his own sons because he thought that they might become his rivals, so he kills his own kids. He eventually kills off Mary Amney herself. And what he does is, is he, does, he is so cruel that the emperor of the entire empire says, in a quote, I'd rather be one of Herod's swine than one of his sons. It is safer to be one of his swine. So this man is well known that he is just absolutely a madman. Towards the time that Christ comes, it is documented that he would dress up at night and go into the city. And he would ask around, what do you think of Herod? What do you think of King Herod? The critics who would be saying something out loud would disappear the next day, and their families. And so it came to be a point, as that became known through the city, you didn't ask about King Herod. You didn't comment about King Herod, lest you be arrested and you be put to death. Here comes three wise men, and what is their question? To the city people. Where is he who is born? And Do you understand why they're troubled? If they talk, if they say something, they might be put to death. Herod is so unstable at this moment. He is just a nut. One of his captains, is recorded in history, decided to help Herod out. He was one of his close confidants. And he told Herod these words. They were recorded in history. The army hates your cruelty, and there isn't a common soldier who doesn't side with your sons. And many of the officers openly curse you. This was his confidant. He became in such a rage, he demanded immediately this guy be put on the rack. He was tortured until he named all the officers, all the military people, all the people within the palace who might have said something negative about Herod. And the story is written that while he was being tortured, Herod was standing there jumping up and down in a rage, demanding. And this man, under the pain, started spelling out names. And Herod kept on saying, the more names you give me, that'll be good for you. I'll stop the torture if you give me more names. And he named dozens of people who were totally innocent. Then Herod, he, he was in glee. Can, can you give you a sense of this? Okay. When Herod was about to die, Herod gave the order. He wanted hundreds of the most influential Jews in Jerusalem arrested. They were taken to the prison and held there for several days. The order was given that when Herod dies, they were all to be killed. All of those citizens. And his reasoning was this. 
He said, if Jerusalem won't mourn for me when I die, by the gods they shall surely mourn when I die. This man was insane. He was crazed. The wise men come to him, and they ask the question, where is he that is born king of the Jews? You know what's ironic in this whole story? Herod's the only one that believed it, what they said. The Jews didn't believe. Herod, though he was nuts, believed enough that said, we've got to do something about this. Now, he was moved with, with anger. He was moved in opposition. So he tells the wise men, basically, you go, you come back, and you tell me what you find. And we all know what his intent was, but they didn't know at that moment. The wise men, being warned of God, after they see the Christ child, they go home a different way. Herod's response, as you all know, Herod then orders the children that are in Bethlehem, two years of age and under, he has them slaughtered. The big question that we might have is, how many was this? I mean, it's a tragic situation. If one child lost its, their life, that's tragic. Bethlehem was about this time about 400 people strong, as far as a town, a city. And so how many there were, the idea that there was hundreds and hundreds of children is just not, not even possible with the numbers statistically of population. But a handful would be too many. And my question is, why God let that happen? Why did that happen? Why, as I reflect upon this, why did God stop the star? Why didn't he just keep the star going and have them go directly to Bethlehem, worship and leave, and not even go and see Herod? Why didn't God just take Herod out? Could God have taken Herod out? Yes, no? Okay, in the Old Testament, what, was it, were angels capable of destroying enemies of God? They did. There's an angel involved in this story several times over. The angel is appearing to Joseph in a dream and talking to him. God, why didn't you do that? Why didn't you have your angel stop this madman? Could God have taken Mary and Joseph into the wilderness and provided miraculously for them and given them the water and the food they needed for an extended period of time? Could God have hidden them? Did he do that with a prophet of old? Who? Elijah. Elijah hit him in the wilderness for three-year period up to that period of time. And so you, I wonder and I say, wait a minute. And yet the passage tells me why. The story in this text explains why God, with my limited knowledge, it gives that clear hint, why did God do what he did? It's stated several times. There's a phrase that keeps on coming up. What is it? Anybody know? That it might be fulfilled. That it might be fulfilled. That it might be fulfilled that was predicted. God worked this way because God had an overall plan. An overall plan to eliminate evil. But what he was doing is this. God's plan that evil and evildoers continue temporarily so that Messiah could complete his mission in time that would result in the permanent removal of evil and evildoers. That, my friend, may not satisfy the curiosity of unsaved people, but from the point of Scripture, this is a fact. 
that God had a plan. And in that plan was evil allowed to carry out some of its objectives. Yes. Now think that through with me, what this means. How this applies to us today. We are in a land that is showing more and more evil. Would you agree with that? Okay. Is there a growing hostility towards Christ and Christianity? Yes. Okay. Here, is Christ being attacked as a hypocrite, a fraud, a chauvinist by educators and religious leaders? Absolutely. Absolutely. Is the Bible under aggressive attack because of its standards? Absolutely. Absolutely. Are believers being openly accused of being haters? More and more. More and more. Is what Isaiah says about the ancient world, is it true of America today? Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Does that sound like today, that evil is being called good and good is called evil? It does. It does. We are living in that time. And when you and I think this through, we ought not to be surprised. This is what happened to Christ. This is the way they treated him. This is how they responded to him. Why, why would we be treated so much better than the master? Why do we deserve to be treated better than Jesus was? It ought not to shock us. It ought not to surprise us. There's a true story that comes out of World War II where some of the speeches that were given by Churchill during the midst of the bombing, he was, he was trying to rally the people. And I want to read one of his speeches and the ending of it to just help you to think with me these thoughts. He said this, We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in the sea and the oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall never surrender. And all I have to offer you is blood, toil, and sweat. Well, those are encouraging words. What did Jesus tell us disciples to do? Take up your cross and follow me. Have we forgotten what the Scriptures tells us? One preacher who I profoundly... His name is Stephen Davey from Shepherd Seminary. He, in commenting, had these words, I can't say them any better. Let me read them to you. Maybe it's about time we Christians remind one another of the truth that following Christ involves blood, toil, tears, and sweat. He didn't promise us a life of ease, but he demanded that every one of his disciples carry a cross. With the growing animosity of our culture towards the Christian church, Christians are growing frightened and even angered that their convictions and freedoms are no longer being respected. But where did God say the world would be our friend? When did the church ever receive a promise that the world would respect our convictions? We have lived in the lap of luxury and freedom, and frankly, the church has erroneously come to believe these are our rights. The TV is stocked with pseudo-pastors, pseudo-Bible teachers who continue to promote the lie that an easy path through life is synonymous with a narrow path of following Christ. No wonder people today, especially in America, who decide to give Jesus a try, become shocked 
when instead of getting a catalog from heaven with lazy boys to choose from, they get a sword, a shield, and a helmet. Jesus Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Which means what? Hell is going to try to prevail against us. Not just institutionally, but personally. For if he, the perfect man, the obedient son, the the sinless savior had difficulties and challenges and struggles and hunger and sleeplessness and temptations and testings and felt abandoned, misunderstood, accused and hardships, who are we to expect and demand anything less or something better? The Word of God makes it very clear that you and I are not supposed to be surprised by what's going on in the world today, in our world today. In fact, I'm going to suggest something a little bit further. Doesn't the Bible indicate there's growing opposition before His second coming? Doesn't the Bible say that in the last days it's going to get more anti-God? You know, which leads me to conclude this. You and I have been promised we will not live in the tribulation and experience all of that, but we were never promised ever in scriptures that we would not experience any difficulty before the tribulation. There's nothing in scriptures that says we will have a life of ease. There's nothing in scriptures that says America will maintain a godly Christian standard until the rapture. There's nothing in at all. And so it shouldn't surprise us that in the days leading up to the second coming of Christ prior to the tribulation, we are going to face more and more opposition. We are going to face more difficult times. Parents, your kids will face more difficult times. It shouldn't surprise us. In fact, we should understand that this is a part of God's fulfillment of preparing the world for his prophecies. Which brings me to this thought. I don't need to panic. I don't need to fear when the opposition grows. That's because God is in control working his plan. And his plan is not to abdicate or to abandon us. It's to help us through the fiery furnace. It's to help us through the difficult moments. Because I know this, that he... And all who are his will enjoy the ultimate victories. That's what he's promising. And what we see going on today, don't you think it could be setting the stage for the end times? So what do we do? We take something so simple as this text and say, hey, we ought not be surprised by the growing opposition. But what should we do? The text adds to it. Let me add the second thought. The second thought, we should be serious about growing in our dedication while we're living in these times of opposition. Every one of us in this room should be more serious about growing in our dedication to Christ. Where do I get that out of this text? Well, the characters that are portrayed in here, especially the heroic ones, Mary and Joseph, the wise men, the heroes in the text... The ones who are responding to God's revelation, who are believing in it, these folk are amazing. They are growing in their dedication as you go through, which involved, I'm growing in the I want to worship. 
They are growing in their dedication that what they signed up to do two years earlier or two and a half years earlier, what they signed up for, they didn't know it was what's all going to happen. But they're growing more and more in their obedience to God. And they are heroes. They are examples to us of how we need to respond in a society that shows opposition to our faith. What do we do? How do we become light in a world that is growing darker? How do we become better salt in a world that is decaying before our eyes? Well, we need to grow in this dedication. We need to say, wait a minute. I don't need to just be passive. I mean to need to be active in expanding and building and growing my faith and the faith of my family. What that would involve is this. Growing in our dedication to Christ, even if it costs us something. What did it cost the wise men to worship Jesus Christ? Can you think of anything that was costly to them? What's that? Years of their life in travel and preparation. Anything else? What did you say? The cost of traveling. Traveling's cheap. Right? Yeah, right. What about, what about the actual trip itself? Wouldn't that be wonderful? To just ride a camel for hundreds and hundreds of miles? Wouldn't you love it? Okay? And what are your servants saying behind you? Are we? Yeah, and you'd say, one more word out of you, I'm kicking you off the hump. Okay? So you got the travel, you got the difficulty. They're traveling a long time, friend. They're traveling all the way from modern Iraq. We're talking, we're talking hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles that they're traveling. What else was there a cost to? The gifts. They have gifts that they're bringing that aren't very, very cheap. Okay, they're bringing precious gifts. By the way, wise men in Persia, you never appeared before the king without a gift. So it makes perfect sense they're bringing a gift. So they're bringing a gift, they're coming, and we know what these gifts are. I don't need to explain what each and every one of the elements are. You already know. But they're bringing something that isn't cheap. You know, they didn't get this at, please no offense, they didn't get it at Ollie's or the dollar store. Okay, this is, this is noble gifts. These are rare items they're giving. But they were growing in their dedication by doing it. Can I suggest this as well? You need to be growing, even if God surprises you. How were the wise men possibly surprised? You're a wise man. You get to Jerusalem. You're looking for the king of the Jews. So what city do you go to? Jerusalem. Why? It's the capital. What do you, what's in Jerusalem where, that, that the rulers live in? Palaces. Okay, so you have all this expectation. And then all of a sudden you're redirected and here you go. You end up at Bethlehem. And what do you walk into? You walk into a house. A house that's not much. Mary and Joseph don't have much folk. They've been living there now since Christ was born. They're probably resettling, you know, getting started. They're within a year or two years of getting started again. As a couple who didn't have much before, when they made offerings, they gave a poor man's offering. So chances are this isn't much of a house. And you've got gifts that you're bringing. You're bringing gold and frankincense and myrrh. What would you hope would be in this house if you're going to leave these gifts? 
Am, am I the only one that if I'm giving my grandkids a gift, I hope that they keep it for a little bit? That they protect it a little bit? That it's, that it's not stolen? This is, this is a big-time item. I, and again, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm all goofy. Maybe Jesus just played with the box. I don't know. Yeah, just like typical toddler. But if you were there, if I were there, this is me, and I might be the only one that's goofy. If I'm walking in there and I'm looking around and saying, where's the guards? I'm giving him a bag of gold or a chest of gold. Where, where's, where's the soldiers? And the only one I see in the house, maybe Joseph was there, but the only one where no for sure is Mary. So it's like, this kid isn't dressed like a king. He's, he's not what I expect. This isn't the house I expected. But what did they do? What did they do with the gifts? They left them. They left them. We're just, this is what we're supposed to do. This is how we're going to provide and take care of it. So we're just going to, God surprised me. I'm still going to follow through. What about growing in your dedication to the point that you would say, when it comes to worship, these next weeks, months, years, I'm going to work harder at worship. I'm going to put more effort into it. I'm going to put more involvement into it. I want to grow in this. You know, I was at camp last year and I made commitments. Have you followed them with them? You know, you promise God something. And it gets, as time goes by, we kind of get disinterested, preoccupied. We kind of, you know, the, ride, the camel rides wore us out. We got sleepy. Are you following through with your dedication? Are you growing this way? Some of you said, I'm going to start memorizing scriptures. You promised God that at an invitation a few weeks ago by the raising of the hands. Are you growing in that dedication? Or have you gotten rocked into slumber already? These people are growing in their dedication even when, this is amazing, God interrupts their plans. God interrupts their peace. Okay, they have plans. The wise men have plans. We're going back to Herod. You know, he's told us we should come back. He was helpful. They don't know what kind of a nut he is. But all of a sudden, in a dream, they're warned, don't return. They don't. They listen to the Spirit of God, even though they don't, they don't know everything. But the ones that strike me the most is Joseph is told, arise, go to Egypt, flee to Egypt. The word flee has, it has its roots in the idea of a fugitive. A fugitive means you're running for your life. You, you, don't, you don't rent a U-Haul, pack everything up as a fugitive. What do fugitives do? What, how much do you, you've seen fugitives. You saw fugitives fleeing the, uh, the Ukraine. How much stuff were they taking with them? What they could carry. That's a fugitive. God is saying to him, get up. Wakes, you know, middle of the night in the dream, the angel says, hey, you got to get up. to go. Everything, every word here has the intensity of move now. Get going. Arise and flee. Get out of here. You know what this meant? Leaving what you just started the last two years. You just got on your feet. Now we got to go to a whole new place where there's, we got we to gotta basically start. But they do it. They do it. Let, let's take it a little bit further. God doesn't tell them all that they would want. Not that all that I would, if I were Joseph. If I were Joseph, I would want to know the route. 
And there's a reason for that. Traveling at night right away, traveling with a woman and a kid, and maybe she's expecting the next, you know, because they had several others. We're going to travel. We're going to go as fugitives. Where do I stay? Because it says Herod will seek seek the child's life. It's not just once and done. The implication is it's going to keep on. And you got to get out of the land. And you got to keep on moving. Well, where's the best place to stop? Everybody else is afraid of this nut. How do I, where do I go? What highway is, which one has the cheapest tolls? Where do I find the cheapest gas? Okay, where do we go? And the worst part about it is you read it in the text where God is speaking to him. What does God leave out when he says run, run down into Egypt? Did you catch it? Where he says, where it says to Joseph in verse 13, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee into Egypt. And then what's God give him? How much information? Stay there until, until I tell you. Oh, that's my way of moving. Let's go until I don't know how long. You can go on vacation for, now that one I wouldn't mind. Okay. There's not all the information here. And all of a sudden he says, when I bring you word. So, so does it, does it struggle? In, do, do you struggle in your life? Let me put it that way. When all of a sudden you're waiting for a trial to end. And God hasn't given you that information when it's over. You're wondering when the doctors are finally going to say, all clear. You're wondering when they're finally going to say, you get to graduate. You're wondering, when is the money finally going to show up to pay these bills? God said he's going to meet my needs, but it still hasn't come. You know, some of us, we struggle with this. We, as we raise our kids, we're wondering, will they ever turn out okay? Do I, what, you know, I've tried, I've tried, and I don't know if they're yet human. I've tried. And they just don't seem to get it. Is there, are, are they going to, God, I don't know. So I just quit. Or do you keep on in your dedication? You say, I'm going to share the gospel. I don't know how they're going to react. I don't know how this week that co-worker will react if I invite them to the, to the reenactment. I don't know. But God says I'm supposed to at least try. You know, I, I just don't know. Some of you have toyed with the idea of, you know, maybe, maybe I should be a missionary, but I don't know where. I don't know if I surrender my life. What will that mean? Yeah, neither did Mary and Joseph. When they said, hey, we, yeah, we're willing to have the baby, they didn't know what was going to happen in the weeks and the years and the months to follow. But they grew as they went through it. What about you? What about you when it comes to this? Growing in your dedication, when God redirects your paths. When you're headed one way and all of a sudden God says, nope, he got, he got you know, a different detour. Okay, so now they're in Egypt. They're, we don't know how long. Is it weeks, months? Is it years again? We don't know. But all we read, read in the passage is this, okay? As we went through the story, it, it, this is interesting. Okay, Herod is dead. Behold, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream. I, I'm sorry. Every verse about Joseph is like, did this guy ever get a full night's sleep? <laughs> the angels are waking him up every time. Go here, go there. I feel sorry for the guy. And so it's time to go back to Israel. Okay? And as he's going back to Israel, doing what God said, 
what is it? What happens here? Okay, it says, but when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the reign in the room of his father, he was afraid to go to Bethlehem, notwithstanding being warned of God. <laughs> he got another dream. Poor guy, another. He doesn't get to sleep again. He turns aside and goes into Galilee. So God can work his plan. What happens if God changed your plans? And let's, let's be real. How many of us love change? Somebody took your pew. Somebody parked where you normally park. Somebody, you know, somebody, you know, it changed. And we get flustered. What if God is bringing change? Does your dedication change? Does all of a sudden when God speaks to you and he's redirecting your path, when all of a sudden God is saying, I want you to change your career, how would you respond? I want to change where you're you're living. I want to change the way you do family. I want you to change it up. Through all of a sudden, a change where... Your worship, your family, things are to change. I want you to do something more than just come and sit in a church service. I want you to get active. How would you handle that change? Would you grow in dedication? Or would you groan that he's interrupted your plans? And let's be frank. We don't like interruption. We just don't like when things aren't going the way we think they should be. I struggled here just these last few minutes in our worship time. This is no reflection on any of our people. But I don't like the idea of spending two days working on a message and the microphone isn't working. And it's like... (laughs) And poor Kyle sitting back there and it's like, Kyle, do something, Kyle. Change this water into wine, Kyle. Do a miracle. We don't like interruptions. We don't like changes in our path. Does it affect our dedication to Christ? Here's one for you as we wind down. What if God doesn't work the way you think he should? That this is me. Why didn't you take Herod out? Why did you let those people go through that? Why didn't you just do miracles after miracle? Because I like the happy ending all through the story. I want everything to be just wonderful. I don't want anybody to be hurt. Neither do you. We want everything to just turn out right. I mean, God could have transported them to Egypt. It would have been easier and quicker that he just, you know, I'm beaming you up, Joseph. Yeah, and there you are. Why did he make them go through all the effort of weeks of travel? And so when God doesn't work the way we think he should work, how have you responded of late? Does it affect your dedication? In fact, let's take it this one. Okay? When God wants you to do something that's not easy to do, God tells them to travel. You're going to be a fugitive. You're not a celebrity, you're a fugitive. Your days of being pretty lasted the moments that the wise men were in your house and it's gone. Now you're a fugitive. Now you're going to have attacks. You're going to have to travel over rough terrain, 75 miles at least to the border, just to the border from where you're at in Bethlehem. 
And if you're figuring that you're with a child, you're by your lonesome, and you're going five to ten miles, this is several days of travel. And there's thieves on the road. It's a difficult moment, and yet they have to do it. How would you respond? Mary and Joseph did it. Oh, oh, by the way, people want to sanitize the story. So in the Middle Ages, they came up with all kinds of extra-biblical stories to show how this wasn't that bad. This wasn't difficult for Mary and Joseph. And so even like this one, there's a story that goes that on this trip, it's cold at night in this desert region. They come to a cave. They go inside, and the spiders realize it's Jesus. They make a web over the cave that is as thick as a door to keep the heat in. But in the morning, it just suddenly evaporates. Oh, there's the story that as they're traveling traveling along, that they come to a grove of trees, not just once, but several times. They come to a grove of trees, and when the trees see Mary and Joseph and Jesus, the trees bow all the way to the ground, so they just have to go and pick the fruit. There's the story in the apocryphal books that there was a time when they were getting thirsty, and so they stopped by a tree. And you know how the roots of the tree, they suck up the water and feed the tree? Well, these trees, as the roots brought the water, it just burst out of the ground and became a fountain that they could satisfy their thirst. There's the miracle that all of a sudden Mary and the baby were having a tough time falling asleep one night. An angel appeared and played the violin. Interesting. That violin wasn't there before, but all of a sudden it showed up here. There's the story that as they traveled, all the animals would come out of the fields and leave the workers and come and bow before Jesus until he passed by. There's the stories that as every statue of a god that he passed by, that statue would just crumble to dust. You see, they have these stories made that for Mary and Joseph, this was, this was like a procession. This was like... Uh, you know, coming into the triumphal entry into Egypt. This was a holiday visit. It wasn't, friends. This was tough for Mary and Joseph. They don't know what Herod's going to do. They're on the lamb. But they did it. Growing dedication to doing the hard stuff. Even when it's not working the way you think it should. What about you? What about you when we look around us and say it's getting more opposition? There's an apathy, a growing apathy. Well, what about your heart? Is there a growing apathy towards Christ or a growing dedication towards Christ? Which one is it in your soul, in your person? When all of a sudden God says, hey, listen, I got things for you to do that are tough, that are hard to do. I want you to change in your habits. I want you to dedicate your life and get baptized by immersion. I want you as a family to truly submit, love. I want you to obey your parents. I want you to trust me in trials. I I want you to become an honest individual. I want you to serve others. I want you to be an individual that gets involved in the body ministry of a church. That you contribute through your gifts. I want you to be charitable. I want you to be an individual who memorizes hides it in the heart. I want you to be an individual that it says that pure and undefiled religion is visiting the widows. Actually doing it. 
I want you to stop judging other people and condemning it. I want you to be one who at work, when you say you're going to be there, you're there. You work hard. You put in that time and you give the effort. I want you to respect the authorities of government. That is hard. But this is what I'm asking you to do. Grow in your dedication. Don't follow the world that is becoming more apathetic and even antagonistic to Christ. That shouldn't surprise us. What is surprising is Christians. Christians who are growing less dedicated, less zealous in serving Christ. That's not only surprising, it's a shame. That's not what God expects of us. If we're going to be individuals like these heroic characters of Scripture, we need to get serious. And that seriousness starts with saying, God, I will worship you. I will yield to you. I will give you what you deserve. Like the wise men and Mary, worship and obedience. So as we sing of dedication this morning, if you want to talk with one of the staff, they're over here by this door. You're not sure you're headed for heaven, go over there and talk with somebody. You're sitting here as a child of God, as a believer. You examine your heart as we sing. Is this true? that you are willing to worship and serve this Christ child. So in song, you encouraged others. Will you do it yourself to worship and follow this Christ? Father, help us. Help us to do not just in word, but in deed, to grow in our dedication to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.